0: The Atlantic wall was a defensive wall, and it was 1,500 miles long. And that was a defensive wall that the uh, the German army used to defend Europe from invasion from the Allied forces. Approaching D-Day in 1944, the Allies resorted to elaborate ruses to confuse the Germans in terms of where the attack or where the invasion of the Allied forces would occur. They knew that if Germany understood the time and place of the attack, that the invasion would be doomed. But to induce the enemy to make faulty strategic decisions in defensive planning, this was the, this was the purpose of Operation Bodyguard, to confuse the German army. In other words, to confuse Hitler and his generals. They even the Allies even had a uh, an individual who was a, a an actor, and he looked remarkably like uh, General Montgomery. And he became a body double for Montgomery, and he copied the copied the mannerisms of General Montgomery. They sent this man to Algiers in May the twenty twenty sixth, nineteen forty four, knowing that German spies would see him there and would conclude that this was General Montgomery. And if the General Montgomery is in Algiers on May the 26th, then there would be no attack. Uh, The attack would not be be inevitable or would not be imminent. And, And so great effort was made to deceive the German military, the German army. The success of these elaborate ruses would be absolutely essential in a successful attack, which then eventually occurred, as we know in in June on June the sixth, nineteen forty four now in Sun Tzu's book, written twenty five hundred years ago, called "The Art of War and one of the things one of the statements made by this Chinese general, Sun Tzu is that all warfare is based on deception and I would like to suggest this morning as we as we begin that we are in danger in focusing too much on elections, on presidents and the individual personalities of presidents, leaders of governments. We have talked too much. These are important subjects, but we have spoken and we have dwelt on these, on these issues with a level of exclusivity that is unwarranted, and we're making a mistake. And we have made a mistake, perhaps all of us have. We have become involved in basically personal uh, personal attacks, uh, analyzing individuals and their political persuasions and what they're likely to do. And, and people are dividing uh, basically in a very unhealthy way in the Americas over all of these political issues. And what is happening in the last number of years there has arisen a number of individuals who claim prophetic ministry and prophetic assignments. These are very questionable individuals for the most part. And the consequence of this is being we're being misdirected, perhaps misled, and misinformed. We need to return to the Scriptures where we find these words that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not natural weapons, but they're mighty weapons through God to the tearing down of spiritual strongholds. The Church has been called to this kind of warfare. This is spiritual warfare. And the spiritual warfare is where our focus must be, should always be, and not to be sidetracked away from this as the Allies attempted to sidetrack and were successful in doing so the German military, in terms of the place of the D-Day assault and invasion. In a similar way, we are focusing on areas where the battle is not, and we should be focusing on the areas where the battle really is. The battle is the Lord's, but it it is a spiritual battle, and we should be engaged in that spiritual battle. And I believe we need to back away from some of these other distractions. Not that these are unimportant. They are very important. But they are not the primary focus of our calling as believers, as members of the body of Christ. They are not. What we need is revival. We need a spirit and a move of God. And the spirit and the word and the move of God is through his people, through his church in the earth. And that is our engagement, and it is to that kind of battle, that kind of warfare that we are called. And I'm going to return again this morning to more than five years ago, as we gave several talks here at Kewaden Christian Center in 2015 on the man of sin and on the apostasy that is prophesied and uh, spoken of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This apostasy would come. And During that period of time, more than five years ago, we talked about that and laid forth a conclusion or a summary after having spoken on this matter for about six weeks. I presented a summary at the conclusion, and it is that summary that I want to re-present this morning because I believe that there's a great deal that we need to glean again from that summary and apply to ourselves at this moment in time in which we find ourselves, and ask ourselves the question, after having very carefully listened to that presentation from 2015, how does that apply to us now? Should we measure the approach that we're taking now in terms of what we believe to be the most important issue that we're facing? Or is it possible that we have been sidetracked? Is it possible that we have been the victims of a ruse in being diverted from our primary calling and engaging ourselves in political matters to the exclusion of our real calling, which is spiritual warfare. Having said this by way of introduction, I return you now to 2015, about five and a half years ago, presentation at the and Christian Center on the apostasy, and it is a summary of the apostasy that is described in Second Thessalonians. Well, I'm going to invite you this morning to open your Bible with me to Hebrews chapter 11. I would like to begin I'd like to begin there this morning in verse number 3. I just want to read verse 3 together. I think I'd like to. I think I'd like to begin this morning with a with a uh, thank offering. Let's begin with a thank offering. All the wonderful things we have to be thankful for and among those things right I think at the very top of the list of course is we're so thankful for the scriptures. Thankful for Jesus, thankful for the Word, thankful for the Word made flesh above all things, but also thankful for the written Word. And so, it's a wonderful privilege to come this morning. And I was saying to, uh, I was commenting to Pat this morning how that I found that yesterday, for example, the week was the week had its own things to be taken care of and. And I found myself engaged in some of those things, doing things just that needed to be done, ordinary things. And at some point yesterday, I needed to make a transition, and I found that um, it took a little bit of time to make the transition, to make a transition from just normal, ordinary things into a place where one would be prepared to consider the scriptures, consider the word of God, and. Not only do we need to make that transition in talking and presenting and ministering from the Scriptures, but we also need to make that transition in receiving from the Scriptures. It's not possible just to come and receive from God things that we need without the preparation. And part of that is to be so thankful for His Word. And so we begin in Hebrews chapter 11, in verse number 3, reverently. I'm going to present to you this morning a summary of the areas that we have been considering for now for about six weeks. This will be week seven. And I'm going to present a summary and then we'll move to other areas. I've been, we have been spending considerable time here and I, I believe going forward as we move into the future that this will prove to be very, very important very important to understand the things we've been considering as a foundation. There are so many things we have not talked about, so many things we have not discussed. I understand there will be a considerable number of questions that will arise. Well, what about this? Well, what about this? And so on and so forth. Those uh, questions will become, I think, will, will be answered as we go forward. But this is, um, this is basically, this has been a kind of foundation. This is basically... Uh, almost a theological foundation. I say almost. Well, it's not really almost. It is. It's a theological foundation. And so uh, a foundation to upon which we understand events that are occurring, upon which we understand events of the end times as they, as we are seeing them, as we are experiencing them. And to be able to properly evaluate events as uh, we continue. move forward. And I believe this is very, very important. And so Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, we find these words, by faith we understand that the universe was created by God's command. If I were to ask you this morning to think with me about when it begins and says, by faith we understand, did we not grow up with an idea that by faith we understand means that we just accept that even though we can't understand it, we can't prove it, we we just accept it uh, by faith we understand. It's like, uh, okay, uh, I'm just going to understand it. <laughs> I'm going to understand it by faith. I can't understand it rationally. I can't understand it scientifically. I must just understand it by faith. So by faith is, we accept things by faith was the idea of that. We accept things on the base of no real evidence to support them; we just accept them. Now, whether I misunderstood or misheard, that's pretty much the idea that I had growing up, and it was unsatisfactory. I come to, I came to realize that many, many years ago that when the Scripture says "by faith we understand," it means it means we understand by faith. And how do we have faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing God's Word. So it's a different kind of hearing. It's not uh, something we understand from school. It's something we understand from God's Word or the revelation of God's Word. And so there's a foundation for that faith or for that confidence. And so it says, basically, based on the revelation of God's Word to us, we understand that the universe was created by God's command. So that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible or things that are unseen. And so everything we have, everything that we see, these beams, everything, the chairs, everything in the room, including our bodies, originates from a realm that is not seen. It's non-scientific in the sense that it's not something that we can prove scientifically, but it comes from a spiritual realm. And so that which is visible comes from that which is not capable of being seen with the natural eyes. And that's a rule, it's a principle, and applies in every area. Spirit undergirds everything. Consciousness is undergirded by spirit. Did you ever spend time and and think about the idea that you're able to, that, that you have awareness? I'm not trying to get too deep in the weeds. But have you ever spent... <laughs> you know, a lot of things we just take for granted. A lot of things we take for granted. But there have been people who have spent an enormous part of their lives and some of them have driven themselves rather silly trying to understand the idea of consciousness. I don't think it's an idle thing. I think it's a serious question. What, what is consciousness? And the very fact that we have it. That you have awareness. <laughs> And so we have a lot of philosophers who have, again, become rather, (laughs) uh, unstable probably in their quest of these things. But behind, underneath all this, underneath something as basic as consciousness, awareness, spirit, underneath it, behind motives, behind thoughts, behind imaginations, lies spiritual essence. Behind all these things is spiritual essence. When you listen to someone talk, do you ever do that? Do you ever just listen to someone talk? If you want to get to know somebody, just be quiet and listen to them talk. Ask them a question about something and then just be silent and just listen to what they say. Listen to what they say, listen to how they say it. And you know know what you're doing now is you're basically getting in touch with the spirit of the person. Do you know that? You're getting in touch with the spirit of the person. So behind everything is spirit. Behind all the events, and this is the part I want to come to. Behind all the events of the world, the history, the age, chronological events in time, every significant events in time, event in time which is foreknown by God. But it all has its uh, foundation. It's all based on spiritual factors, spiritual essence. The decisions that have been made by kings, decisions to go to war, decisions to have peace, decisions to marry, decisions, 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 all have underneath them spiritual prompting, spiritual essence. So in the natural realm, what is seen has its foundation in that which is not seen and not visible, but also in all the events that occur. And in the events that are about to occur as we approach the end of this age, all those events that will happen in time and space, that you will see elections for presidents and prime ministers, and all of those things, wars and rumors of wars, all of those events have behind them and underneath them spiritual prompting, spiritual leading and guiding, is underneath and behind them all, every single one of them. And for this reason, since God is spirit and is the father of all spirits, he knows everything that will occur, has occurred, will occur, could possibly occur, because it all has a spiritual origin to it. I want to read to you just to corroborate that concept in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. I'll just read verse 5. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Then the Lord God saw this. He saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continual. The thoughts of his heart is the thoughts of his spirit. So God looked at the spirit of man. He saw the evil of his his actions, but he knew that it originated from the spirit or the heart of the man, and it had a spiritual origin to it. That brings us, of course, in Genesis to the introduction to Noah. Let's uh, come to our summary and I'll just go through them point by point and I'll start at point number 1. We began by reading from 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 about the man of lawlessness or the man of sin in the King James Bible the man of lawlessness and we said to we discussed the idea that is this man of lawlessness an individual man is this a man as an individual or is this a kind of humanity And we suggested that uh, it's both. It is a kind of humanity, but also it it describes individual men. So the idea that it may describe an individual man at the end of the age in a unique way is entirely harmonious with the idea that it also describes a kind of humanity that has existed now for the last 2,000 years, but that increases in lawlessness and this lawlessness is a lawless lawlessness against god and this kind of humanity is characterized by a spirit of rebellion and a spirit of ascendancy i'll use that word ascendancy the idea of ascendancy is the idea of arrogance and where individuals lift themselves and um, elevate themselves in terms of their importance humanist manifestos are an example of uh, carnal man, a human being, the kind of humanity that is described here, elevating themselves to the uh, zenith or great heights in terms of importance and self-importance, and assuming actually the place of God in their own life. Then we talked about, in the second point we discussed, was the idea of the man of lawlessness, that is described in 2 Thessalonians, is revealed. Something happens that permits this kind of humanity or this type of individual to be manifested. And so there's something that happens that allows the man of lawlessness to be revealed. And we shared that that which occurs is an apostasy or a falling away, from the provision that the Lord has made for his people. There is an apostasy, a great apostasy, that's global, that's worldwide, that's transcendent. It's a falling away. And if there was no falling away, there could be no appearing of the man of sin. So apart from this apostasy or falling away, then the man of lawlessness could not be revealed because it is the operation of the fellowship with God and with Christ Jesus occurring within the temple of the human heart and the church, the corporate body of believers, that prevents the appearing of this kind of humanity, if you like, or this individual man of lawlessness. I'll give you an example of, of, of this kind of idea. In great revivals, uh, as we've studied revivals over the last 2,000 years, I love the subject of great revivals, and I've studied it. And I find that when there is revival, a great revival, a spiritual revival, restoration of the truths of the gospel, where there is a great visitation of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers, where they come together and they intercede, faithfully intercede, sometimes for months, Sometimes for considerable periods of time, or they pray and they pray through. The old timers referred to the uh, praying effectually as praying through, and they knew when they prayed through because there was a witness of the Spirit to them that they had actually received the answer. And the then and the the uh, that which um, prompted them to pray in the first place was not just themselves, but the prompting to pray was the Holy Spirit coming and inviting them into the place of prayer. And they yielded to the leading of the Holy Spirit. That tells us something about the importance of believers in this world. Very, very important. I don't think we give this the importance it deserves. Our importance in this world in terms of the manifestation of the things of God in the earth, it is essential that human beings cooperate with the Word and Spirit of God in bringing into manifestation the things that God desires to manifest in the earth. Otherwise, there would be no need for prayer on our part. But we do not have those things because we do not ask, and sometimes we don't ask with the right motives. So when when they began to pray and intercede with God and receive his answer that the revival was coming and he poured out his spirit among, upon them and among them, then one of the things that began to happen is in the region, in the, and sometimes the geographical area, there was a, there was an awareness that began to settle upon people, ordinary people. Not just on Sundays, but during the week. There was a sense of the presence of God There was um, an awareness of God in a way that prompted within people a conviction of sin. And individuals who previously were just careless, entirely careless, and weren't concerned about sin at all, suddenly began to sense that they were sinning. And they became uncomfortable with the way they were living. And they became uncomfortable that they were doing things they shouldn't and not doing the things that they should. Sometimes people then who would be traveling on a train or whatever kind of conveyance would come into those very regions where there was a great outpouring of the Spirit and the Word of God and they would sense the conviction upon them. And they would be compelled almost in a way that they didn't understand. They would be compelled to stay in a certain town. And would find themselves in a meeting later on that same day. and All kinds of examples of this. This is an example of how that what is occurring within the spirit of the church, the spiritual life of the church, has a tremendous impact upon the larger community. And it's proportional. So when that, um, when that spiritual life within the fellowship of believers, when that spiritual life begins to fade or decline, and when that, um, Intimacy with God begins to be lost by degrees. Proportional to that, there is an increase in sin, frivolity, lack of conviction of sin, lack of awareness of God and his claims on one's life. In other words, as the one declines, the other increases. As the life of God in the church increases then the open expression of sin and iniquity and evil within the society tends to decrease. And it's always proportional. Always proportional. Every time it's pro- proportional. It has always been this way. This can be proved. Uh, I, you know, We could bring proof after proof after proof that this is true. Therefore... When you have prophesied in the scripture that there will come a time of great apostasy and falling away from the vibrancy and the spiritual life that God intends within his church, within his people, then it's reasonable then to say and to understand that there will be an increase in evil and sin and wickedness in the earth. And again, it's proportional. So we see this happening now. There is an increase and we're alarmed. We look at the symptoms. You talk about, We can talk about abortion. We can talk about a lack of respect for marriage vows. We can talk about sexual promiscuity. We can talk about perversions of all kinds. We can talk about all. All those are symptoms. Those are symptoms of the disease of sin. And they cannot be dealt with just as symptoms. The way to deal with those is to deal with the sin that causes them. And how do you deal with the sin that causes them? There must be an awareness of sin. There must be conviction of sin. Well, where does conviction of sin come from? Conviction of sin is dependent in great measure upon the spiritual life and vibrancy of God's people in the earth. We see the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. Yes, absolutely he does. But how does he do that? just going, do whatever he wants to do. But the way that he has chosen to operate in the earth is through a body of people. Jesus has chosen to operate in the earth today through a body of people, body of believers. You are my hands, you are my feet, are not just expressions. So this is the idea that we have been talking about, that this is always proportional. The third point is, to say falling away from what? There's going to be a falling away. Falling away from what? It's a falling away from fellowship and communion with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the best way to describe this is to read about it from the Scriptures. And I'm going to read starting in First John. John's first letter that he wrote, 1 of, of 3. He says, What we have seen and heard we also declare to you, so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is marvelous. In every great revival, um, tracing down through history, the great revivals and spiritual awakenings that have occurred, reformations, they've all been based on this communion and fellowship with God and Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful communion and fellowship. It's prayer. It's, 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 It's not just formal prayer. But it's communion, fellowship. It's all day long. It's while you're working. It's while you're driving. It's all of those things. In Matthew chapter 28 verse 20, we've read, we we have read all these passages. I'm just summarizing them. The last chapter of Matthew, Jesus talking about the Great Commission. He talked about going and teaching them and so on, making disciples, making, uh, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he said, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you. That means in fellowship, communion. I'm with you. You need to have a question answered. I'm there to do that. When I need something done by you, I'm there to tell you what it is. If our communion and fellowship is not intimate, then I can be telling you, but you're not hearing me. I can be knocking at your door not just to come in and have something to you know to eat at the table a physical table but to fellowship with you and if you're not able to hear not able to open the door then the fellowship will not occur but his promise has been that he would be with us always to the end of the age and that's absolute that's absolute And it is in the absence of this fellowship occurring that we see a decline within the spiritual life of believers and the corporate church, and we see corresponding proportional increase in just superficiality, interest in all kinds of things except spiritual things, no real seriousness. An entire generation rises up just totally occupied and preoccupied with silliness and foolishness and fun and games. And it's not right. And we're not designed to be that way. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that generation any different than any other generation. The problem is always with God's people in the earth. We want to put the problem over onto other people. We're acting and misbehaving and all of that. And yes, they have to answer. Everyone has to answer for their actions. We're not saying that's not true. But there is an influence that is brought to bear upon people's lives that determines whether we make certain decisions or not and what decisions those may be. And those, those that, that influence is determined by the life of the church. Hence the importance of apostasy and falling away. Then I want to read in John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, beginning at verse 23. This is Jesus praying now. He's praying to his Father. And the prayer is recorded. Listen to what he says. He said, I am in them. I am in them. And you, Father, are in me. May they be made completely one. So the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire those you have given me to be with me where I am. What does that mean? I desire those you have given me to be with me where I am. Well, I know what we're all going to say. We're going to say, Jesus is praying. He is uh, in the presence of the Father now, and he's desiring that we would when we die, we would go to be with him in the presence of the Father. Is that what he's saying? Yes. But is that all that he's saying here? Is he saying something beyond that here? Yes. Yes. I desire that those you have given me to be with me where I am. You see, there's an element of that which is, he's praying for now, now, right now. To be with him where he is. Now, you say, can we be with him where he is now? Well, the scripture says, yes, that's what John talked about, inviting us into this communion and fellowship that he had with the father and with the son. Uh, Jesus had previously, previously said, I am in them in a unique relationship. I am in communion and I am in fellowship with them. That's where I am. I reside within them. I reside within them in their spirit. Because the Spirit is the temple. And in the temple of the human heart, which is the human spirit, which is the temple, that's where I reside. Yes, He resides at the right hand of the Father in His glorified body, but it's a spiritual realm. This is not just time and space dimension. This is not time and space dimension at all. It is a spiritual dimension. And that's where He is. And in that spiritual dimension, he can be there and he can be here. And we can be here and we can be there. As we have previously said and given examples for. This is wonderful. These are wonderful things. Now, it is a falling away from the reality and the experience of these things that is the apostasy. He said, I desire those you have given me to be with me where I am then they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you know that when someone dies and goes to be with the Lord, they will see his glory? Yes, absolutely, they will see his glory. Yes, they will. They'll see his glory. But do you find that, do do we not know that it's possible for us to experience a degree of the glory of the Lord now? In the communion and fellowship with with God the Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ, as we come into His the presence of the Father and the Son, within the temple or the spiritual our spirit, that there's possible for us to experience the glory of the Lord there. Absolutely, absolutely. Then in verse 25, Jesus continuing, he says, Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and, the, and these have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them. Well, we've talked about this many, many times. I made your name known to them. The name means the reality of the person. Basically, I have revealed you to them, is what Jesus is saying. I have revealed you, Father, to them. They know you because I have revealed you to them. So he says, I have made you known to them and will make you known to them. So the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them again. And the apostasy is a falling away from this, is what it is. And restoration would be entering back into this provision. Number Four, again, is the, the point that was made is the temple is within you. The temple is uh, within you is designed for this fellowship. And anyone, anyone who has ever experienced the wonderful communion of fellowship with God, the Father and God the Son, God the Word, because you know a person can go to church all their lives and not experience the reality of this fellowship. Isn't that an awful thing? It's possible. It's possible for people to go to church and be in churches all their lives, never really experience the reality, the fullness of this fellowship. And that is a very sad thing. But this is what happens. I know that I know that I know. This is what happens with every individual who experiences this fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And this is what they will say in whatever language in the world they speak, they will say this, I was made for this. That's exactly what they will say. I was made for this. I was designed for this. I was created for this. My work is this. My work is this other. You know, I do all these things. I have all these interests. But that fundamental sense that I have been looking for all my life for meaning, I'm looking for meaning in life. This is it. I was designed and I was created for this. They will all say that. Everyone will say that. you know that? Everyone will say that. And that fellowship and that communion is the answer for all the difficult questions in terms of human identity that we face in this 21st century. I am this. I'm not going to even mention the words right now. You know what I'm... I am this identity, I am this other identity, I don't know what identity I am, I am male, I am female, I am both male, I am both female, I am this at this time, and I am that at this time, and I have no clue who or what I am. I think I am all of those things. I can be black or I can be white. I can identify as black, even though I am biologically white, and so on and so forth, and all these kinds of things. Just absolutely bizarre. And every single one of those, and when I say bizarre, I don't mean that people don't, aren't really uh, deeply concerned about these questions. Yes, they are. And to those people who are caught up in this, these identity crisis, I'm not trying to say that that's not important to them because it is. Some of them are taking their own lives because it is so important to them. So I don't mean to trivialize it. What I am saying is the answer to that is not some kind of therapy The answer to all of those things is communion and fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. Exactly the answer. And then the person will say, I was born for this. (laughs) Right? I was born for this. And then the ability to obey God's laws. Not only is loved and desired... But the strongest, all the power in the universe is there to enable that. Absolutely wonderful. And the apostasy is the falling away from this. That's what it is. And number five, point number five is after the falling away, the temple is invaded by means of deception. Because the temple of the human heart will not just lie there It's designed for fellowship. It's designed for communion and fellowship. And it will have it. And if it will not have it with God the Father and God the Son, for whom it is designed, it will have it with malevolent spiritual beings. And so after the falling away, the temple of the human spirit is invaded by means of deception, by lying spirits and doctrines of demons. And this again is proportional. And the corruption on the inside, then, results in all manner of deviant ideologies. All manner of deviant ideologies. Can you list any deviant ideologies today? Ideology, the ways in which people think, system of belief and organization of their thoughts into a certain kind of structure. It's deviant, perverse, in opposition to God's law and God's word. How does that happen? Why is that occurring? It's happening because of malevolent spiritual beings entering in through deception into the temple of individual lives, the heart, the spirit of individuals, and deluding them and confusing them and persuading them of things that are in fact false, which they now believe to be true. And you can list all of those things, those deviant ideologies that you see around you today. And if you ask the question, why are they happening today? This is the cause. And I think we need to know because this is happening in among members of our families. Some, in some cases, friends, other cases, sons or daughters, or some cases, parents of sons or daughters, and people want to know why? How could it possibly be that so and so is believing this way and and conducting their lives, their life in this way? How could that actually be? It's deception. That's what it is. Well, what do you mean it's deception? Because they have adopted a philosophy that they absolutely believe is freeing them. They've never been happier in their lives. It's delusion. It's deception. And in their spirit, in their heart, in their spirit, the temple, the sanctuary of their life, they're fellowshipping with evil and don't know it. But they have been designed for the cross work of Jesus to fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. And he would love to fellowship with them and has as great a love for them as for you or me or anyone else. And, and fervently desires to fellowship with them but he needs them to be convicted of their sinfulness. And how are they going to be convicted of their sinfulness when he has determined that he convicts of sin in the earth through the lives of the corporate body of believers to a great degree? But if the corporate body of believers is going through apostasy, then how can he use those lives to convict of sin? I want to read to you from Second Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. says, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Listen very carefully. For men, just means mankind, men, women. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud. This is the new kind of humanity. You see, this is the, this is man of lawlessness. They are boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection and perversity, truce breakers they can't be trusted, false accusers, a tendency to accuse others of things that are in fact not true. You see it happening in politics. You see it happening in personal lives. You see it happening at every level, but it is a tendency in the last days when these perilous times will come, and this is during the apostasy, that one of the manifestations of this Will be falsely accusing other people of things. And the reason they will do that is to support their own cause or to promote an agenda that they have for themselves. We have to be very careful about these things. You don't believe everything you hear. Another is incontinent, that is lacking in self control. Another word is fierce, which means cruel, and despisers of those that are good, they are traitors. They're heady, they're high-minded, they're lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. They have a form of godliness or a form of religion, but they deny the power thereof. They deny the power thereof means they they deny the authority of God's rule. That's what it means. They deny the authority of God. And then we find these words, it says, "From, from such turn away from such turn away. And then I have this phrase that has come to me. I want to ask you to remember it. And it's based on this, from such turn away. And the one that has come to me is this, turn away or fall away. If you don't turn away from this, you will fall away from the reality of the faith and the provision that has been made for you. You say, will there be that person be eternally lost? That's not for me to say. But there will be an impairment, and there will be a falling away from that which has been provided. So let me say it again. The scripture says that we should turn away from these things. And so I say it one more time. Turn away or fall away. And the sixth one that I want to share with you is this and this is where the news begins to be extremely bright exceedingly bright and good because in second Thessalonians chapter 2 it also talks about this man of lawlessness being destroyed and it says that very clearly that he will be destroyed this kind of humanity this man of lawlessness will be destroyed by the breath of his mouth and by the brightness of his coming the breath of his mouth What's the breath of his mouth? It's the spirit of his word. Right? It's the spirit of his word. It's it's what he says and the spirit with which he says it. The power with which he says it. It is basically the power of God's word. And so what is spoken about by the apostle is that the power of God's word now will lead to the destruction of this man of lawlessness. And by the brightness of his coming... The brightness of his appearing. Now, this describes a mighty restoration. This is what it describes. It describes a mighty restoration. It describes a complete reversal of this downward decline into degradation in the earth. And it describes a restoration to righteousness and holiness and right relationship with God. And the cause of it is the spirit of his mouth. The power of his words, and the brightness, the illumination of his appearing or of his presence. Where there was darkness, now there is light. It's like the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. That, that laid in spiritual darkness until Jesus came and, and began to preach and teach in those communities. And those who lived in darkness have seen a great light. See, it's like that. There's a restoration coming. But it is the timing of this restoration that we don't know with precision. Yes, me, if I know this with precision, the timing of this, no, I do not. I'm asking the Lord for more light on this. But I don't know. Will it be that there will be a great revival in the earth? Great revival, reformation in the earth. Will this ministry be presented to the earth through the spiritual body or the church in the earth? Will there be a restoration of the church? Will there be a restoration of the legitimate, genuine gifts of the Holy Spirit or the pneumaticos? Will this idea in Scripture that many have leaned to of a latter rain, former rain is the idea of, in agriculture, the former rain is the rain that allows the crops, you know, to germinate and, and so on, and the early life of the plant to start. And the latter rain is the nourishment that's needed and the rain that's necessary to bring uh, the crops to harvest, to fullness, to maturity. So you have the former rain necessary and you have the latter rain. And some have drawn analogies to the former rain as occurring at Pentecost and to a latter rain as a great restoration of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and a great revival that would occur within the church at the end of the age. Will that be true? I don't know. I don't know. But it's possible. We have to be open to this. That there will be a restoration absolutely is a fact. I don't know the timing. But I know there will be. And I know it will be by the breath of his mouth and the brightness of his, of his appearing. I know that. But does that mean he will manifest himself through the spiritual body of his church in a remarkable way? Or will he do this when he actually returns physically to the earth? Will he return visibly to accomplish this? Which will it be? Will it be one? Will it be the other? Will it be a combination of the two? I don't know. I'm just going to rest humbly. But we need to be aware of both those. And all those. And a combination of those. I'm going to come to a conclusion I want to read to you beginning in Acts chapter 3. I want to spend the balance of our time this morning talking about the return of the Lord and advance a few thoughts with regards to the timing of the return of the Lord and events that need to occur. And I do not have the final word on this. I just want to advance it. And uh, we need to be aware of these different thoughts on it. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 21, it says, Whom the heavens talking about, the Messiah Jesus and his ascension and and Peter preaching and talking about uh, the timing of the second coming of the return of Messiah. He says, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So there's going to be a fulfilling, a restitution of everything that has been prophesied in the scriptures and The timing of the return of Messiah is related to the restoration or the restitution of all of those things. Then another passage we find in Acts chapter 2 and verse 35. This is based on Psalm 110. And Peter uses this prophetically now and talks about it in terms of the return of Messiah. And he said, The Lord said, and this is from Psalm 110 originally, The Lord said unto my Lord, That is, God the Father said to the Messiah, Sit thou on my right hand. This is where Messiah Jesus now sits, completed his work, the right hand of the Father. Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes, or thy enemies, thy footstool. What does that mean? Sit at my right hand until I make thy foes, your footstool. Well, it seems very clear that there is a process of time in which the enemies of Messiah are made to come into submission to him and become a footstool for his feet. We do not yet see, in Hebrews says, we do, do you, we do not yet see all things reconciled to him, but we will come to see when all these things are reconciled and when Every knee will bow, and so on and so forth. But what is the timing of this? Well, there's one clue in this, and that clue is that the last enemy, there is a final enemy that must be made a footstool for the feet of Messiah. And the idea of a footstool for the feet is the idea of authority and triumph over, of a conqueror triumphing over his uh, enemies and adversaries, where they become a footstool for his feet where he puts his foot on their neck. That's what it is. There is one enemy that's going to... Uh, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to put his foot on the neck of this one enemy and is the final enemy. And do you know what the final enemy is? Death. Death is the final enemy. But there's a whole host array of enemies that Messiah puts his foot on their neck or, in other words, triumphs over them. Has it been the intention of the Lord Jesus to triumph over his adversaries and enemies through his spiritual body the church I believe every provision has been made for that to occur I bless my personal belief absolutely yes there has been a great apostasy and a great falling away will there be a restoration will there be a restoration I'm going to leave that as a question will there be a restoration will there be an outpouring of the spirit globally Remember we shared a little bit about the idea of what happens in a region when there's a great revival? What happens if there's a great revival and spiritual awakening and re- reformation, restoration globally? Then what's going to happen globally is going to have the same proportional rule applied to it. You're going to find people in all parts of the world who are going to be convicted of sin. You're going to find members of ISIS who suddenly are going to lose their gravitas they're going to lose their boldness. They're going to lose their confidence. Every doubt is going to begin to come up and take uh, possession of their faculties in terms of the doubts of what they have been taught. That, was, that is what would happen. Is there going to be an outpouring? Is there going to be a latter rain? I know there was a movement many years ago called latter rain. It probably still is. I'm not referring to movements. I'm not interested in Movements. But I know that there was a teaching centered around the idea of latter reign with the idea of a restoration uh, to the church of of great spiritual power in life. Is that an impossibility no it 's not an impossibility. Will that occur i don 't know i don 't know. I believe there is strong biblical evidence for it, but the exact timing of the events and those events that are going to occur in the ministry of Jesus through his church and those events that are going to occur only at his second coming himself, the timing, that I do not know. And no one else does either. Everyone has opinions. Let's be careful about our opinions. I want to read to you from First Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to start to read. Uh, the apostle is writing here about the resurrection of course and the different stages of the resurrection i'll start to read at verse 24 it says then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to god the father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power this is what i'm talking about this is going to happen But what exactly is the timing of this and how is he going to do this i'm open on that then it says the last enemy that will be destroyed is death now, we know when the last enemy is destroyed, though. We're going to see this in a moment. But before the last enemy is destroyed, then all the other enemies will be destroyed, right? If there's a last enemy that is to be destroyed, then that means that the other enemies have already been conquered. They have already been made a footstool for his feet. But it says the last enemy is death. I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 52. I'll start to read uh, at verse number 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that is, experience physical death. The apostle is talking about the body here in the resurrection of the body. Therefore, he uses the word sleep not to pertain to the soul, but to pertain to the body, because he's talking about the body. He says, We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet. Listen carefully. For the trumpet will sound. And the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. Now this is the moment. When death is conquered. Do you know that? This is the moment when death is conquered is conquered all those who are in the graves the bodies of those loved ones of yours and mine who are now in the graves will be reunited with the spirit and soul and they will be resurrected and the resurrected body that they will live in from that point throughout eternity will be exactly like the kind of body that Jesus inhabits now his glorified body wonderful, absolutely wonderful Death, where is your victory? You see? uh, The grave has been swallowed up by, it has been defeated and swallowed up in victory. This is the last enemy. So therefore, it's reasonable then to say that other enemies have already been defeated and placed under his feet. Only this one has not yet. The last one is death. When is this happened? This happens at the return of Messiah. Well, there's another passage and it's in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to close with this, I believe. This is great. These are wonderful things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and I'm going to go back uh, to about uh, verse number 13 and begin to read to you. He said, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That is, again, physically the bodies of those who have been placed in the tombs or placed in the grave. Sleep always refers to the body. Remember this? talks about sleep. It's not talking about soul sleep. It's talking about the body. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Now, he's talking about the coming of Jesus. It's actually appearing, his his appearance, his coming to the earth again. In the clouds, as he left from the Mount of Olives. He said, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Those of us who are still living on the earth when Jesus comes back. We're not going to go ahead of those whose bodies lie in the graves because they're going to be raised, those bodies are going to be raised incorruptible at the same moment in time in the same twinkling of the eye that our bodies will undergo a transformation. Listen to what he says. And he writes these things and says, I have this word from the Lord. There's no question about the apostle. He's not writing his own opinion now. He's writing what has been revealed to him. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Oh, what is that? Isn't that something? He will descend from heaven with a shout. Now, is there meaning in this, he will descend from heaven with a shout? Absolutely. But let's be very careful that we don't jump in with explanations for all these things when we do not have those explanations yet. One of the biggest mistakes we as human beings make is we try to carry a load that's too heavy for us. We try to answer questions that we don't have the answer for yet. Somebody asks us a question and we feel obligated to answer it. We're not obligated to answer anything. We're only obligated to faithfully say what the Lord shows us. Be very careful and humble while we do that. And have the attitude, Lord, if I'm wrong in these things or wrong in the things I'm saying, then please correct me, and he will, if necessary. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will arise first. This is the last enemy is destroyed right now. First Corinthians talks about it. First Thessalonians talks about it. This is the last enemy to be put under his feet, and that is death, and it's happening right now. I know exactly when this is going to happen. It's happening right now at the return of Messiah. Not before, but right at it. But it's those other enemies. Will they be placed under his feet before this? I believe the answer is yes. 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 And there must be a move of God, I believe, within the earth that is so profound that it effectually provides this conquering of his enemies. I believe that. And I believe that Second Thessalonians, the second chapter that talks about the destruction of the man of lawlessness or sin, is the key to this. It is the spirit of his mouth and the brightness of his appearing. This is going to happen, I believe, before this happens. But we have to be very humble and try not to say more than we know. But we want to think about these things, you know, be aware of them, just to think about them, to evaluate these thoughts and things. And then verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, those loved ones, We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air to meet him in the air. Is this to meet the Lord in the air and go with him? I don't believe so. I just have to be honest. I know it's taught that way. I don't believe that's it. I'm just being honest. You you believe the way you believe the Lord leads you. But I have to be honest. And just based on the light now, I have to say I don't believe that is. I believe that's his return to the earth. The last enemy is destroyed. All, everything has been fulfilled that is required biblically and scripturally for the Lord to return. All his enemies have been placed under his feet and the very last one is placed under his feet as he descends in the clouds, not yet touching on the Mount of Olives yet. Dead in Christ are raised. Those who are alive and remain are caught up to meet him in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. It says, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. In this way, we will always be with the Lord. In this way, in this glorified, resurrected body, with our loved ones, with our loved ones with your loved ones. Let's be faithful to the Lord. Let's be found watching. And let's ask the Lord to continue to add and illuminate because I can just say as I close this morning, about 20 some years ago, I wrote um, a few articles on entitled Speak the Word Only. And when I came to the very last one, I said this is to be continued. It's not finished yet. There's something there's more that needs to be added to this. I was very comfortable with what had been given. This, what we're talking about now, is the continuation of that. And we're not finished because there's a lot more that we don't know. And are we going to know everything before the Lord returns? I think not. We will know what he is pleased to reveal to us. And is he pleased to reveal to us a lot more than we know now? Absolutely, yes. But what is all that conditioned on? A lot of that is conditioned, all of that is conditioned on how ready we are. I have many more things to say to you, but you are not ready to hear them, he would say. So then I would say, well, Lord, get me ready to hear them, because I want to hear them, so let's become ready to hear them.